0: So this morning I want to talk to you about sustaining revival by abiding in Christ or remaining in Christ. Um, I'm going to share from John chapter 15. If you're familiar with John chapter 15, that's the passage where Jesus says, I am the true vine. Before we called our church the true vine, he was and is the true vine. We named our church after Jesus, and we took our church name from this passage in John 15. So I'm excited to share that with you. But what I'm doing is trying to build on what I shared last week about this new vision that that, uh, I believe God has given our church, which is to make disciples that sustain revival. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about vision. Uh, Vision is bigger than just a vision statement. A okay, vision statement, like make disciples that sustain revival, that's good for like putting on church letterhead or putting on a business card or a sign somewhere, uh, but really that's not the full vision, it's a, it's a condensed version of the vision. If you have vision for a church or vision for your own life or vision for your family or vision for your workplace really what vision is is not just a little tagline it's a picture that you see in your head. I mean I hope that's not too hard. Vision is something you see, right? My wife, for instance, has a very particular vision for our kitchen. She's visionary in that regard. She knows exactly what color the cabinet should be and the window what the window should look like and now she has vision for the floor and and uh, you know she doesn't have a, a kitchen letterhead like uh, our kitchen will be the best Rudd householder no, it's, it's not about having a statement or a tagline or a something to put on letterhead or business cards it really is a picture that you see and you f- find ways to communicate that picture does that make sense so we form like language around that picture now this is part of our language here, making disciples that sustain revival. But really, I want you to be aware of the picture that I see in my head when I think about making disciples that sustain revival. The picture that I see is of a group of people who all the time, every day, are just incredibly 3 7 thralled with Jesus. That are just constantly 24-365, even in the tough seasons, even in the good seasons, centered around and focused on Jesus. That even though life is going up and down, they're steadily on the incline uh, with Jesus. And so that's kind of the picture I see. I, I see like vi- vibrant worship. I see people standing and extending their hands to God and singing, and and it's coming from their heart. I mean, I see communities transformed around the presence of God. And I see a church that does good deeds in the name of Jesus in a way that communicates beauty and redemption to the community. So that's a little long for a letterhead, don't you think? So we say, make disciples that sustain revival. Those are kind of the pictures that I see when I think about that. Now, to be honest... I kind of think Jesus saw those same pictures. I think Jesus also, when he thought about his church, he looked forward and saw pictures of people that were given over 100% to him, to loving him and to doing his will. Don't you think Jesus saw that a little bit? I mean, when, when, when John got to go visit heaven in Revelation and he saw the people worshiping, they weren't standing in worship Like this, right? I mean, it was was vibrant. They were pouring everything they had out, right? And so I think that Jesus sees this same thing. Now, Jesus, I think, indirectly or maybe directly taught on a, a term we call revival, okay? Jesus never used the word revival that we know of, although the word revive is in the Bible many, many times. Most of them are in Psalm 119. But this is how we define the word revival. This is our personal definition. Spiritual renewal that leads to social change. Now I want to give you some background about why we define it that way because I don't I haven't we didn't steal that definition from anyone. We didn't borrow, that's our true vine definition. Okay, that's unique to us. Now I've uh, most of my time with Jesus has been dedicated to this idea of revival. When I was a teenager in high school, um, I would go to parties on weekends just like all of you used to and don't anymore, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've walked down Marsden Street a couple times. Um, uh, You know, I would come home from those parties and uh, I would would go in my room as a 15, 16, 17-year-old and I'd pull this book out I got someone randomly gave me this book, 70 Years of Miracles by Richard Harvey. And I would read through that book while the rest of my friends were sleeping off hangovers and doing whatever they were doing. I would read through this book. And it was just this man's autobiography of 70 years of encountering God, seeing miracles, seeing the supernatural. And chapter 19 of 70 Years of Miracles is called Miracles in Meadville. Well, I'm from Meadville. So I liked that chapter. I read it a lot. He, he would tell stories about places. I'm like, I know where that is. Uh, this book, uh, well, he, when he wrote it, um, there's a story in chapter 19 about during the Great Depression, everyone was out of work. No one had jobs. Well, I don't know if you know this, but the zipper was invented in Meatville. The, the thing you hold, that holds your pants together. Or tries Um, well, the zipper factory, it's now called Talon, was in Meadville. And the guy that owned it, even though he wasn't a Christian, said, anyone that goes to such and such church, I'll give a job. So people started going to church to get jobs, and that led to them getting saved. And you know that church they went to was the church I went to. So not only was chapter 19 about miracles in Meadville, it was taking place in the church I sat in every Sunday morning. So I would read this book at night and I would just fantasize about what would happen if revival came to our community. What would it look like? Because now we don't only have a zipper company, we have a dog food company. We have a sewage plant. It's a beautiful smelling town. The day Kendra and I got married was a a heavy dog food and sewage day in Meadville. Well, and, and, and then I, I went to college and my final thesis at the end of my college career after four years of pre- preparing and studying was a biblical theology of revival. After college, I got involved and in, uh, I skipped seminary and got involved with something called the College of Prayer, which is uh, their mission statement is to uh, reach a lost world through a revived church. And I've just, this is something I care about deeply. I love reading Stories from people like J. Edwin Orr. It's an old man. I don't, he might be dead now. I don't know. But J. Edwin Orr had three doctorates. You've got to call him Dr. 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 Orr. He had three doctorates. All of them were in revival studies. And he would just tell story after story of revival in this nation and revival in that nation. And I love to just watch these still on, he's on YouTube, these old videos from the 70s and 80s of him telling these stories. I love books like Reese Howe's Intercessor by Norman Grubb, which is about the revival in Wales. In 2007, I got to visit a revival that was taking place in Gulu, Uganda. For those of you that remember, have ever heard of or seen the movie Invisible Children, this is the town that took place in. After a civil war broke out, revival came, and I got to visit that. And I saw with my own eyes 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. Uh, during a a service in the churches and the vibrancy that took place there. So, uh, this is, that's where that definition comes from. 20 years of being obsessed with this idea. But, here's the thing about being obsessed with revival. One of the keys to sustaining revival is not to focus on revival, but Jesus. If you focus on maintaining some sort of... uh, feel or vibe it'll die off really quick most of us have experienced this in our personal lives we we have this big moment with God it's kind of it's it's thrilling it's exciting and then it wears off and you're like what what was the song that I was let me go listen to that song again let me go sit at that bench and try to recreate that moment have you ever tried to do that or am I the only one that does that Okay, four of us, great. Okay, the rest of you need to get a life. <laughs> you, you have this encounter with God, and then you try to recreate that rather than seeking a fresh encounter with God. And I, man, I'm all, I'm all about anniversaries and dates, and I'm like, oh, it was seven years ago this day, God said this to me, and I'm like, let me go sit in the same spot, listen to the same song, read the same book. And I've just found that, that it's, it's sentimental, but very rarely is there a fresh encounter there. Because uh, it's like almost trying to, like, I'm focusing on the little mini revival rather than on Jesus who wants to do a new thing. Does that make sense? So, it may seem counterintuitive, but focusing on revival can kill a revival. Because it becomes about the thing. Does that make sense? So really, if we want to learn how to sustain revival, we have to focus on Jesus. About a year ago, I had uh, really bad pain in my right arm, in my elbow, in my wrist. And I mean, for months, I had this bad pain. And uh, I was focused on, I I mean, I was sitting my arm on a desk a certain way. And all day long, I was stretching my arm out. And I was on four painkillers a day. And... Finally, I went to the doctor, and I was like, you got to check out my arm. And my, my doctor referred me to a chiropractor, and I said to the chiropractor, you got to check out my arm. My arm hurts. And my chiropractor put me down on a table and put her knee in my back. And I was like, but it's my arm that hurts. <laughs> well, actually, the, my focus was here, but she had to put pressure on several points in my back to heal my arm. And after a couple visits, I mean, it's perfectly fine now, But it it took a couple visits, and she actually had to push on points here to heal this. And I think that there are points that Jesus wants to push on to bring life over here. Kind of like, don't get obsessed with the pain, right? Get to the source. We don't want to get obsessed with the results of revival and renewal. We want to go straight to the source, which is Jesus, Is this illustration working? I can't tell if you're confused or... Okay, thank you. Um, Now, what I want to do this morning is lay a biblical and theological foundation for this statement of making disciples that sustain revival. I shared that with you last week. This is something I believe Jesus spoke to me about, but I don't want you to simply take my word for it. Even though that's very nice and I appreciate your trust. This has to have some sort of biblical theological foundation because if it's just something the pastor said, as soon as things get hard, you're all going to blame me. I need you to see this is in the Bible. This is not something I cooked up or dreamed up. This is actually the kind of disciples Jesus wants to make. Okay, So then, when things get hard, you blame Jesus. Is that a deal? Okay. Um, So, Uh, We're going to start this process by looking at John 15. This is the passage we uh, take our church name from. This is the passage where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I'm going to stop there for a moment and explain a little bit about tending a grapevine. I'm not an expert on tending a grapevine, but I did work on farms many summers when I was younger, and I have a grapevine. It's right over here on church property. It's outside Freddie and Bella's door. Um, so I know a little bit about taking care of grapevines. That vine, started when I start planting that thing, it was not even as big as my pinky finger as far as around. It was long, but it was only this big around. Uh, it's been about four years It's about this thick around now. It's taken over the side of the house. It's leafy. It's big. The last two years, we've gotten a decent amount of grapes from it. But here's the thing about a grapevine, or really most plants. Not every branch bears fruit. That grapevine has thousands of little branches off of it. And some of them have no grapes hanging off. I mean, none of them have grapes right now. But during the season, some of them just There's no grapes. There's leaves. There's a branch, but there's no fruit. Here's the problem with that. Those branches with no fruit are still taking nutrients, water, for lack of a better term, that life-giving sap, the juices, whatever you want to call it. They're still taking that away from the branches that are bearing fruit. So what you're supposed to do is get some shears and nip those suckers off real close to the, to the base so that all the water and the nutrients can be redirected toward the branches that are bearing fruit. Does that make sense? Okay, that's just what we call husbandry. It has nothing to do with being a husband. It's just taking care of plants, okay? You got, sometimes you've got to prune. I'm not even speaking metaphorically right now, but you can take these metaphors. Sometimes you've got to cut off the branches that don't bear fruit, literally, to redirect resources toward the things that are bearing fruit. And this is what Jesus is teaching us in John 15, that things that don't bear fruit need to be cut off. Now, how does this apply to your life? There are probably things in your life that aren't really bearing much fruit. There might be things that you put a lot of energy toward, a lot of effort toward, a lot of resources toward that just they are not bearing fruit. You might need to cut those, prune them, cut them off so that the energy, resources can be directed toward the things that are bearing fruit. Churches need to do this sometimes. You know, churches get in this habit, well, we've always done this event. We've always had this ministry. Okay, is anyone getting saved? No. Is, anyone, is anything happening? Is there any fruit from this event? No. Does it take a lot of money and energy? Yes. So why don't we prune these fruitless things so that we can redirect the resources toward the things that are bearing fruit? Does that make sense? This is straight up just part of growing a natural or, an organism. Right? This is part of treating church life like an organism rather than a machine. Okay. So when Jesus says... Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. He's saying, if it doesn't bear fruit, God's going to cut it off and remove it. If it bears fruit, he's going to cut every unnecessary thing off so that it bears more fruit. You following this? Okay. So this is John 15. As I said, this is the passage we get our uh, name from. I'm going to read the whole thing. Actually, we already read this slide, Courtney, if you could skip this one. Picking up in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. There's one more slide. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So, Uh, Jesus uses this word abide over and over and over. How many of you use the word abide in your normal daily conversation? Not much, right? I got, uh, I had to pick my son up from school on Thursday. I got there 15 minutes, so I just abided in my car. (laughs) You know, I was uh, waiting for the bus and it was running late, so I abided at the bus stop. No one talks like that, Right? But the word abide, the Greek word, means remain. just means remain in my love, remain in Christ, remain connected. Does that make sense? If the whole grapevine illustration doesn't work for you, think of it this way. Your cell phone, if you have one, probably has a battery, right? You charge the phone, then you unplug it, and it goes for such and such a length of time before it dies out. Now, I, I don't know about you, but the old phone I had in the 80s never died. The battery never ran out. Why is that? Because it was always connected. So your spiritual life, the way Jesus has designed your spiritual life, is not like a cell phone battery, but it's to always be plugged in. Right? You don't have a spiritual battery, guys. You don't get to plug in on Sunday morning from 11 to 12, 15 and hope that you can run on that charge the rest of the week. Jesus is saying you have to remain connected all the time. You you don't unplug. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. That's That's what Jesus said in the beginning of this passage. Apart from me, unplugged from me, separated from me, not abiding in me, you can do nothing. I think one of the most dangerous things to the world is Christians who think they can do something apart from Jesus. They're screwing it up. So, Jesus never intends for us to be unplugged. He is teaching what some people call abiding spirituality that we would remain in Christ. Now, I think, honestly, another way to say remaining in Christ is sustained revival. I think it's just it's the same principle, we're just saying it a different way. Does that make sense? Am I stretching too far to make that connection? I don't think I am. I think it's the same principle. So whether you think we can say make disciples that sustain revival or make disciples that abide in the vine, it's all the same, I think. It's the same principle. I just think no one will know what we're talking about if we say abide in the vine. Everybody got that? Now, Jesus actually makes these four points, as I was talking about my chiropractor earlier. I think he actually puts his finger on these four Things that will help us abide in Christ. And those four things are, well, I'm going to just teach those. We can, uh, we can abide in Christ or sustain revival by remaining in Jesus' word. This is in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. When I read that passage, immediately I think, I better know the Bible then. I better know scripture. I better give my life to studying scripture. I better dedicate time every day to studying scripture systematically and in depth. I should learn the context. I should learn the cultural backgrounds. I should learn some of the key vocabulary. I should look at other. I think of Bible study when I read that. I want the word of God to dwell in me. Now, a lot of times, most of the time, the New Testament word. I got to say this correctly. The New Testament word for word is the Greek word logos. We would spell it L-O-G-O-S. And that word uh, logos means a speech, topic, or saying. Okay? So when uh, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of of God is living and active, it's logos. When 2 Timothy 3.16 is talking about the word of God, it's talking about logos. Almost every time in the New Testament that uh, the, the word word is used, it's logos. Except here, it's not the word logos. It's actually the word rhema, which is not the same as logos. The word rhema does not mean a written down speech topic or saying. The word rhema means the sound of a living voice. So when Jesus says, abide in my word, he's actually not talking about Bible study, although I know Jesus loves Bible study. He's actually talking about, remember the sound of my voice. Live in the sound of my voice. So, yes, first, I mean, please don't misunderstand me. You got to have this, right? But when Jesus said, abide in my words, he's saying those impressions, those specific moments when I've spoken to you, those, what he called, the word he uses, Rama word, the, the living voice words. Um, I find that as I study scripture, there are actually times where it seems like there's a living voice popping out of the page at me. I remember a couple years ago, I was uh, sitting in a very spiritual booth at Chick-fil-A Reading, reading through Galatians and man, Galatians, there was a portion of Galatians 6 that jumped out at me. And I remember I was reading it, it was the passage that said, uh, do not grow weary in well-doing for those who sow to the spirit will reap from the spirit and those who sow to the flesh will reap from the flesh. And I remember reading it and thinking, you know, the font of that verse just looks bigger for some reason. Everything else looks like a little 12 font. This looks like a 24 font. It just looked big. I mean, it jumped out of the page. Has anyone ever experienced that? Where, where a passage just jumps out? So I'm like, okay, let me take. So I'm, I'm writing it. I'm praying about it. I'm digging into this verse. And then I read the next verse. And the next verse, Paul says, see with what large letters I write. And I was like, oh, okay. So God still honors that. There's these emphases that even the the authors put in there. And so that was a rhema word that has stuck with me for eight years, and it still encourages me. I know this is a little corny, and it just shows that I've been in church too much, but do any of you have a life verse, like a verse, a couple of you? Mine, my favorite verse as it relates to like where I want the direction of my life to go is Acts 28.31. It's the last verse in the book of Acts. It's about the Apostle Paul. It says, boldly and without hindrance, he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ and preached the kingdom of God. I would like that on my tombstone, if any of you are around for that. I mean, that verse is a rhema verse for me. And then there are times where people have prayed things for me. That it's, it's not necessarily a verse, but it's a, it jumps out at me. It's like a living voice. So what Jesus is saying is those... Things, those words that come from God, dwell on those. Don't, you know, file it away in the back of a drawer and never visit it again. Revisit it frequently. You all know that I journal because I'm a 12-year-old girl. And it's better than calling it a diary. You know, I journal, and uh, I told you my, my life verse is Acts 28, 31, But this summer I went through and found... All the other passages that God gave me that felt like that. I have 22 life verses written down that when I don't know what to read in the Bible, I read one of these. When I just, I'm like, I don't know if I should read, should I read Proverbs again? Should I read Psalms again? If I don't know what to do, I go to one of these and I revisit these frequently. I also have every specific, what I believe are words from God that are specific to my life written down in here that I had to pull from other journals and condense into here. I have things in here that are specific for our church. And I have to dwell on these because honestly, they encourage me. And when I'm having a rough day or a rough week, I can read these and be encouraged. It helps me to abide in Jesus, to be encouraged by these specific things. Does that make sense? Have I spent enough time on abiding in the word? Good. Good because I do have to end this service at some point. The second thing that Jesus tells us to remain in in order to sustain revival or abide in him is Jesus' love. This is in verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. How much does Jesus love you? As much as the Father loves Jesus. That may be difficult to believe. That's why it's the gospel. It's almost like too good to be true. Right? If you can put your emotions aside and just think rationally for a minute and accept the truth of this. Jesus loves you as much as the Father loves Jesus. I don't care if you feel like that's true. He said it. So you're going to have to start agreeing with that. Furthermore, if you're in Christ, meaning if you've responded to Jesus in a way that brings salvation to you if, you, if you're a Christian, God loves you as much as, the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus, because every time God looks at you, he sees Jesus. Even if your behavior doesn't necessarily line up. He sees Jesus, and the, the affection that God has for Jesus goes right and is directed toward you. Everyone understand that? I mean, the the way that Jesus lived his life demonstrates nothing but love for you and I. I mean, I'm going to get to the cross in a minute, but before I get to the cross, let's look at the life Jesus lived to qualify him to go on the cross. Every time that Jesus was a little 12-year-old boy who saw a woman walk by and he chose to not sin, that was out of love for you. Every time Jesus had an opportunity where he was tempted, when he went down to the wilderness and he could have turned rocks into uh, bread, but he chose not to, that was out of love for you. I mean, Every act of obedience that Jesus lived was actually love for you that then qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And as he's on that cross and has the opportunity to get angels to take him off the cross or find another route, I mean, he didn't says he endured the cross for the joy set before him you are that joy that was set before him you are that thing that he thought of to keep him on the cross that in the glory of god are what motivated jesus to stay on the cross and go through this difficult thing his love for you is really incomprehensible so if you have a hard time wrapping your head around it that's fine i just need you to believe it I don't need you to write a thesis or a paper or anything. I just need you to believe Jesus' love for you. Because the truth is, when you let that conviction that Jesus loves you kind of get under attack, something else fills that void. And for me, it's usually guilt and shame. And guilt and shame don't motivate the way love does. A lover will always outwork a worker. If your spiritual life is work that comes out of guilt and shame you'll do nothing compared to a person who's motivated by love you'll get some work done and it'll all be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble but something that's motivated by love just fuels you differently, so Jesus wants his disciples to actually be convinced of his love for them, not their need to perform, to earn anything the third thing Jesus points us to is uh, to abide or remain in Jesus' commands. Now, Jesus uh, doesn't, he doesn't just want us to think about all the nice little promises he's given us and feel warm butterfly feelings. You know. uh, he actually wants us to obey him because the commands that Jesus gave us are actually for the good of the world. And as we fulfill those commands, we see the world is transformed. Now, what were the commands of Jesus? Go to church once a week, Listen to K-Love. You know, read the New American Standard Bible. No, those are not the commands of Jesus. In fact, I would even just subtly point out the commands of Jesus are even different than the commands of Moses. When I think of the commands of Jesus, I think give a cup of cold water to those that are in need, visit prisoners, clothe the sick, cast out demons, heal the sick, sorry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, preach the kingdom. Those are actually the commands of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus's commands are different than Moses's. I'm not saying we get to get rid of Moses's. I'm just saying they are different. So those are the commands of Jesus. He wants us to do those. And I believe Jesus wants us to do those things willingly and not against our will. Because I know and you know that when you have to do something against your will, doesn't it just suck all the life right out of you? You ever had a, like a boss or someone tell you to do something you're like, I'll do it because I have to, but I, And then you just, you dread it. And at the end of this job that should take 30 seconds, but it took you all day, you're just exhausted because you've been fighting against the flow of your will all day long. Whereas if you get to do stuff that you want to do, you end up with energy at the end of the day, Right? It's not about how hard the work is, it's about your will. When you have to fight your will to accomplish something, you end up exhausted. When you get to do it with your will, you get energized. I think Jesus doesn't want us to be exhausted at the end of a day of obedience. I think he wants us to be uh, filled up and brimming over with, uh, with life at the end of a day of obedience. And I think the harder part is not actually just doing it, but it's getting to want to do it where I want to do the things that Jesus wants me to. So that's a matter of submitting your will to God, not just forcing obedience. David prayed something like this, sustain me with a willing spirit. When your spirit wants to do it, it's sustainable. It's like swimming with the current. You know how fast I can swim with the current? As opposed to swimming against the current which is about the same speed for me (laughs) but do you understand what I'm saying it's like running uphill versus running downhill it's the same distance isn't it if you run a mile uphill that's the same distance as a mile downhill only one of them exhausts you right did I make my point here okay so grow up come on I'm just kidding um finally This is what Jesus wants us to do to to abide in him and sustain revival. He wants us to remain in his joy. This is something we covered earlier this year when we went through the emotional health series. Um, Jesus wants us to live joyful lives. In 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in Romans 14, it says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of food or drink. It's not about whether you can eat pork or not eat pork or do this on the Sabbath or not do that on the Sabbath or drink alcohol and not drink. It's not about food or drink. He says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And David prayed in Psalm 51, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And Nehemiah wrote in chapter 8 of his book, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I said this in January or February, and I still believe this is true, that joy is supposed to be the default emotion for a Christian. Now I'm not saying you will always be joyful. This is what I am saying. Many of us live where our default emotion is depression with little fits of joy here and there our team won. I got a promotion. Back to depression. I I think that many people live with default depression with little moments of joy. I think the kingdom of God is the default is joy with little moments of struggle and sorrow here and there. Listen, life happens, people die, you lose jobs, the Eagles lose games. Things happen that make you sad, and I get that, so God gives us the grief process. The grief process is not for you to build a new home and live in that. It's to restore you to joy. The process of grieving is not so you can be sad all day. It's, it's, it's God's process to restore joy in a fallen world. Okay? Okay? So the default emotion, I, I, this is my personal conviction, for a Christian, the default emotion should be joy. Now, I know that you can't just flip a switch in your heart and say, put it on joy mode. I know you can't do that. Here's what you can do, though. When you find that you are not joyful, do the work necessary to get to joy, then. Forgive people. Grieve losses. Praise God. Remember his faithfulness. That's all I'm asking. Is Please don't settle for funk. funk. Don't fake the funk on the nasty dunk. <laughs> you, you, if your goal is not joy, you will not move toward it. That's all I'm asking is put it as the goal. I, I don't expect you to all. I, I'm not, I mean, Noah's grumpier than me. So I don't expect you to always be joyful. I just expect that that's the ambition of your heart is to move toward joy, okay? Amen. Um, now, here's what I want to do to wrap up this morning. This is two weeks in a row we've been talking about this idea of sustaining revival and making disciples that sustain revival. And Scott's going to talk about it next week. And I think we're going to talk about the week after that. So we've got a couple more weeks here. But I think we're at a good point right now where there might be some of you that say, I like that idea, but I'm not really there right yet. I like the idea of feeling close to God and having a fire inside of me. I like that, but man, that's not where I am. I'm kind of cold. I'm kind of dead. I feel like one of those branches that has either been dry or burned out. That's how Jesus described the branches, dry or burned. I don't think that's necessarily literal for us, but it seemed poetic. So this is what I want to give you the opportunity to do today. Um, I'm going to have Scott and May and myself up here up front to pray for anyone that would like God to start a work of personal renewal in them today. Now listen, I'm convinced of this and actually I had some great questions last week to clarify this making disciples that sustain revival. You and I cannot start revival. It's impossible. You can't do it. That's why we have fake ones. Because someone tries to work something up in, the, in their own power in the flesh. You, you and I can't start them. God starts them. What you and I can do is steward it. We can maintain it. We can sustain it. We cannot screw it up. That's all I'm asking. I don't, I don't need anyone to be like, I'm revived now. Listen, I'm not asking you to do that. What I am do, asking is, when God does something, hold on to it don't let life take back over. Does that make sense? So if you would like someone to pray for you and agree with you and pray for you this morning, that God would start that work in you, kind of like light that flame, Scott and May and myself will be up front to pray. Um, And listen, I'm not even promising that you're going to, it's going to be immediate. I just think this is something to ask God for. Okay. So I can't promise that you're going to go out of the out today with a smile on your face, but, but I think let's start the process now, right? Let's begin asking God now and see what he does so that when it comes, I mean, we have a little bit of information today to help us sustain that. We, we live in joy. We obey Jesus' Jesus's commands. We dwell on his word. I mean, these are the things we do to, to sustain this stuff. So Scott and May, if you wouldn't mind coming up. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close us in prayer and I'm going to ask Courtney if she'll play some music for us just to cover us. Once I say amen, you're welcome to leave. I would just ask this. Um, be sensitive of the people that are up front being prayed for. Um, if you want really to need to hang out in the back of the sanctuary, or go downstairs and get your kids. That's fine. But please remember there's people up front dealing with God and we want to give them the time they need for that. Would you mind standing with me? Jesus, it seems like you've given us the beginning of a clear path to how to begin to make disciples that sustain revival. And it seems like this is what you were doing. You you taught your own 12 disciples to remain connected to you. And so, Lord, whatever the language is, we want to make disciples that abide. Our whole church is built on that premise, which is why we we feel like you told us to name the church True Vine. Is to, to create an atmosphere, a culture of Christians that are abiding in you and remaining in you. And so, Lord, I pray for those today that they know that they, the fire needs a little stoking right now. They know that the flame needs to be breathed on. And only you can do that, Jesus. You stoke the fire. You light the fire. You breathe on the fire. But we are asking today, Lord, that you would do that. And so, Lord, I pray for those that come up front that you would meet them powerfully. I pray for those that leave through the back door that you would meet them powerfully. Lord, throughout our week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, meet us powerfully and do it in a way that breathes life onto the flame of God that you've put in our chest. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, if you need to leave, you're dismissed.